Okay, welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. Joining today is Akash Kumar. Akash, I wanted to have him on for a couple of reasons. One, he's an expert on the labor market. Two, he's an expert on the future of hourly work. Um, and I think these are really the underlying issues that will address kind of how the future of labor uh, unfolds. Maybe even more importantly, he's the founder and CEO of a startup called ShiftSmart, which is the first flexible labor platform. The idea is really to think about how we approach hourly work by breaking it down into individual shifts. So it's, it's a really interesting company. You've got an interesting background. So Akash, thank you for joining us. Hey, thanks so much for having me. So b- before we dive into ShiftSmart and all that, just so the listeners kind of know your background, kind of how did you get here? Yeah. So uh, before this, I was at Google and uh, I had two jobs when I was there. First was on the uh, brand new retail team. So we were building and scaling retail operations for the first time as Google was launching hardware products. That sort of gave the first introduction to just distributed labor, uh, things like large-scale merchandising organizations, store operations, all of that. And then uh, ended up on Google Cloud. Uh, which early days of Google Cloud, working with the senior leadership team there. And, uh, and that really gave like a ton of inspiration to the idea of, uh, if you think of what GCP or an AWS were doing at the time, mm-hmm. it was just really fractionalizing the idea of a server into smaller units like computing units or storage units and making them flexibly accessible to anybody who wanted to build on top. So you don't need to build your own infrastructure. You could just tap in a compute as you needed. That's sort of where the idea clicked between sort of the two experiences that if you think of distributed labor and really are able to fractionalize the notion of a job down to the actual unit of consumption, which is the shift, uh, you could very much build the GCP for labor as well. And and do you remember kind of that, <laughs> that moment, sorry, we had a little background noise here, um, where you were like, holy shit, why hasn't anyone done this yet? Like yeah, where you were I sitting, did. where you were walking, whatever it was. Yeah, you know, it was it was really interesting. Um, I was in, based in San Francisco at the time, and it was sort of the rise of uh, all of the on-demand businesses, yeah. and uh, whether it's like an Uber or a DoorDash or you know, all, you could basically get anything in de- on demand from food to rides to laundry to flowers. And it sort of hit me for a moment as I was ordering something that the real innovation is not on the demand side in terms of getting flowers or laundry, it's this uh, notion on the supply side where as a worker, I'm downloading an app and able to swipe and work whenever I want to. And that's sort of where the aha moment hit of uh, everything we're talking about in sort of like this broader notion of the gig economy, this is all just 1.0. This is just a small application into consumer logistics, but this broader notion of work whenever you want to, uh, get paid fast. Those types of ideas are more structural and going to catch on in terms of how the future of work unfolds. Yeah, and do you, um, h- how do you think COVID sort of changed? If it's changed, it seems to me, even when I look at our own employees, that you know some of their attitudes around work have changed, uh, maybe, maybe in a healthier way, but in terms of more balance, more flexibility, all of that. Um, do you how did COVID kind of impact your thinking around all of this? So I think COVID is probably uh, one of the fastest natural accelerants for the adoption of technology that I think yep. uh, could have happened in yep. terms of these trends towards flexibility, choice. Uh, they already existed, but just going through everything that we've uh, as a society have been through for the last few years, I think it put all of that front and center. Like to give you an example. 
um, you know, we had uh, great contact center software uh, that was like public companies that were large, ready, scaling, all of that. And yet we all still, you know, when we were working as an employee in a call center, used to walk into a physical box, sit next to hundreds of people still next to you. And, uh, and that was the way you ran it. And yet in COVID, everyone moved to a distributed load where you could work from home, you could tap into this call center software. And one of the consequences of that that you see in the industry is now you can work from wherever you are. So we have hundreds or thousands of jobs that are being created in rural parts of America that would have never had access to that type of work because you didn't build a physical call center there. But just the era of adoption of technology really changed a lot of that. And that's at least one of the trends of a few positive byproducts of COVID we've seen in the market. Yeah, for sure. So the problem that you guys are solving for, explain it to the audience a little bit, sort of how does the status quo work? And then we'll kind of get into why ShiftSmart you know, really changes that. Absolutely. So uh, think of ShiftSmart as a labor platform designed for the modern hourly workforce. Our entire thesis is really built on this notion that uh, workers want more flexibility and that at the end of the day, uh, if they can come in, build a profile, use that to apply to different jobs, and then uh, get badged and trained across those jobs, they can flexibly pick up shifts across multiple different employers, whether it's 10 from one, 15 from another, five from another, uh, and be able to use that data and performance history to be able to unlock higher jobs over time. And on the other side of the platform, uh, companies can use uh, not only our platform to manage their own workforce, but also tap into this network of now nearly a million workers on the platform that uh, uh, want flexible work uh, and want to work when they want to. So if a worker wants to work 10 hours a week, one week, 28 the next, five the next, they have the ability to do so. And for a company, it's external access to train labor that they would have never had before. So one of the things that I imagine at least is, is on your radar screen is the ongoing fight between labor and some sharing economy companies around worker classification, right? Yep. And whether or not people who are in that sector are employees or independent contractors. Um, does ShiftSmart work if everyone got converted over to W-2? Yeah, so even today we, we use uh, uh, multiple tests, whether it's statewide regulation or uh, depending on company by company, the employer types that we're working with. When, and we make an active determination whether someone's a W-2 employee or a 1099 employee uh, or a 1099 contractor. At the end of the day, ShiftSmart breaks everything down to the shift level. So our structural innovation is making it easy to be able to go work two hours, four hours, six hours somewhere and make that the commitment instead of a 40 hour a week job where you don't get flexibility on your controls. So for us to structure to a W-2, it's a very simple model. Although there's a broader notion there that maybe, you know, FDR era regulation shouldn't be the only two ways that we should be looking about, uh, you know, what yeah. classification looks like in uh, in the economy. You actually led right to, right, right to my next question is, okay, so I'm giving you a magic wand you're in charge of redefining worker classification, what should it look like? I think for us, that there's a really clear middle ground here where you wanna capture the benefits infrastructure, the safety net that you uh, at least theoretically are supposed to get in W-2 work. And I think it's a often misunderstood aspect of, you can be a W-2 worker and still not get healthcare benefits, all of those types of pieces. Uh, 
So you want to some levels to capture the safety net as well as capture and embody the flexibility of just working whenever you want to. So I know there's these ideas that have been thrown around in the marketplace of dependent contractors. Uh, and I think that's a really, really interesting idea in terms of living somewhere in the middle where you get this notion of a safety net like pro rata benefits infrastructure, all of that, uh, but a broader condition of working whenever you choose to. So, you know, there's this phrase, the great resignation, that we all hear a lot. I'm not sure that I totally understand what it actually means. I mean, I could define it in a way that probably sounds okay, but but when you get beyond that, um, give me your take on what it is, why did it happen, and what does it mean for ShiftSmart? Does that help you? Does it hurt you? How does it impact you guys? You know, it's really interesting because I think one of the things that we're seeing more broadly is uh, on some levels... Uh, the broader nature of how work is handled, uh, especially in our country, where it can often be really transactional when we think of hourly workers, I think it's coming to head for one of the first times uh, in the marketplace. Mm -hmm. So when COVID started, uh, especially retail, hospitality, broader industries went through a massive, uh, pretty transactional process of firing and furloughing all these workers. And uh, uh, these workers needed to find other ways to make income. And so they looked at alternate opportunities, different types of industries, different types of skills that they could tap into. Uh, I know in our network alone, we translated a significant uh, thousands of workers that had typically hospitality backgrounds uh, into being call center workers. And, uh, and now they don't want to go back. And so as we think about the broader notion of uh, a transactional uh, you know, relationship between a worker and now they've had choice for the first time and they can go do other things, it's a pretty clear reason as to why they wouldn't want to go back into places where they're not as appreciated. And I think that broader notion of what else is available to me is going to structurally apply, as well as this idea of I don't need to be working all the time. I have a lot more control of my hours, so I want to work when I want to. All right, so then let's take the notion a little further and say, what are the sectors for whom the traditional 40-hour week W-2 model would kind of always make sense? And then what are the sectors that we may not realize but actually would be better served with a more flexible model? So I think the idea behind fractionalization is any time that you can break things down into, like, into a 40-hour work week, into like just shifts, what it does is it expands the total market for the number of people that would be willing to serve within that structure. For example, there's a lot more people willing to do a two-hour merchandising shift at a Walmart than they are willing to work 40 hours a week for Walmart. So I think a broad test of uh, whether fractionalization actually works is if, one, uh, labor is in demand. So I think anything in healthcare that we've typically found to just more structurally be a full-time job, I think there's a lot of opportunity for that to really fractionalize and break down where everything from nurses to veterinary techs to even doctors and some of the stuff that we're seeing today uh, where it can be broken down to expand the total market. Where I think it's going to be a lot harder is sort of more knowledge uh, and white collar roles where uh, one of your core aspects of your role is external communication, maintaining history over time, things like mm -hmm. that. Uh, yeah. And I think that will be really difficult. I think in almost all other industries, there's a huge opportunity to just expand the market by breaking it down. So what's the reaction when you guys approach someone like a Walmart and say, hey, you know, staffing and management of that is probably one of your top few costs and issues. 
here's how we can fix it. Um, have they been, have they jumped at it? Have they been skeptical? Like, what's it like? And how hard is it to get to the right people at these places? Yeah, it's a great question. So, uh, and, and they're a customer of ours, but, you know, six years ago, I would say that uh, everyone was a lot more skeptical. And typically, the two biggest questions we get asked are, uh, how will we emulate training and then performance management more broadly? Um, one of the things that I think we've uh, been able to do is just service a wide uh, swath of the enterprise. So now, uh, as, uh, as we approach new customers, um, they get to see where we've had a lot of success, where everything from you know, our work with the federal government down to some of the largest retailers or brands in the world, we're able to give a very clear picture of referenceability. And I think second, it's the broader labor market is under so much pressure where you have over 11 million jobs open uh, in the country, uh, sky-high churn rates, workers aren't showing up in terms of no-show rates are an all-time high, that for better or for worse, I think uh, especially employers today are willing to give a try to something new uh, and see if it actually works for them or not. How much do you think that some of our recent policies around immigration and kind of limiting the flow of workers into this country has impacted the job market here and the ability for companies to, to fill shifts that are needed? I, I think massively. I think our general view on immigration uh, should really be around what should maximize choice and enablement uh, for whoever wants to actually do the work. And I think being able to create artificial limits is really hurting uh, some of the toughest parts of the economy, things like hospitality, retail, where we've seen a broader portion of the population uh, actually be immigrant populations. And I think uh, we don't have to look too far in terms of this is the exact trend that's happened in Europe, um, where now they're having to reverse a lot of immigration policies, open up uh, you know, everything from traveling nurses and across countries. Yeah. I think we're probably headed down a similar path as well. Yeah, with, with maybe the, well, I mean, I guess Europe has sort of their same nationalistic, uh, you know, issues around Syrian refugees and things like that. But um, generally speaking, it's, you know, there's just more freedom of movement simply because of the EU totally. itself. So when you watch these fights around worker classification, which I'm sure you've been watching really closely, sure. the argument that the advocates for W2 make is that the workers who are working as independent contractors, working disparate shifts, things like that, are only doing so because they're being exploited and they have no other choice as opposed to this is actually what they want or is best for them. What, yeah. what's, what's the best response against that? Uh, well, data. Uh, so right off the bat, you know, we have a network now of nearly a million workers onto our platform. If we look at uh, our average worker hours in terms of the average hours that a, a worker wants to pick up and work, uh, on average, 51% of our, our workers work less than 15 hours a week, uh, and then the other work more with a slight spike at the 40 plus. But I think the most important pairing statistic to that is that workers only pick up, on average, about 22% of the shifts that they're offered them. So workers on average are working 15 and picking up 22%. So they're choosing that the only amount of shifts that they want to work is 15 because on some notion, it changes flexibility. We also see about a third to half our workers change the times of when they work on a weekly basis. Uh, again, proving out that for a lot of them, convenience is almost number one. Um, and I think you have to ask yourself on some levels, 
when you have, you know, nearly 11 million jobs open in the country yeah. and workers are still flocking to platforms like ShiftSmart, choosing to only pick up, uh, you know, sub 40 hour shifts. Uh, is it truly that they don't know that they can go get a job? Uh, I think that's a large jump to make uh, right. on a lot of levels. Yeah, I mean, you'd have to imagine that, right, with 11 million jobs or like I was reading this morning, New York City, I think, is still down 450,000 jobs yeah. um, since the pandemic. Um, it, you would think that anyone who wants a traditional W-2 type job is not going to in the service industry or something that is that necessarily require, you know, a, a ton of education can find one, right? Exactly. So anyone therefore choosing to go instead with a platform like ShiftSmart is, you know, this is what's better for them. That's exactly um, right. That's yeah. exactly right. Like some of the demographics that I think are really interesting that we see on our platform is, uh, you know, we have uh, um, about 27% of our working uh, base are working moms. And for them, one of the largest factors for why they work with ShiftSmart is flexibility on their on their shifts and they can control and uh, and most importantly they cannot work when they want to and I think that's a really important as we think about just broader access and uh, you know like everything that we want from an equity standpoint uh, a big part of that is also like allowing for when you don't work uh, in a way that traditional w2 employment doesn't really capture and do you think in a way one reason why uh, W-2 sort of has its supporters is that it, it actually, in a weird, perverse way, lets you exploit workers a little more because they're your employees. They don't want to lose their job. You know, they're maybe they're supposed to work 40 hours a week, but it's, it's a little fungible. And therefore, if you kind of keep pushing them for a little more and a little more, you can probably get it. I would imagine that a, a shift smart worker actually has a lot more leverage to protect themselves from that. Uh, 100%. I mean, if you think about just even the simple functions like scheduling uh, and how a modern scheduling system works, in a, in a W-2 environment, in a pure like, hey, you work 40 hours, you're my employee, I'm going to tell you exactly what to do because I've legally classified that and, uh, and structured it that way. All those scheduling systems are designed for the manager in mind to set up, you know, five, eight hour shifts to for 40 hours and then right. just hit repeat and repeat and repeat. Right. Isn't it a ton harder to go figure out the actual Tetris puzzle of, you know, Joey wants to work 11 hours and they're spread out across four days. Maria wants to work 17 hours and they're spread out across three days. That's a lot more complex than still being able to run uh, structural operations. And I think uh, on some levels, it's if you go back to a historical worldview, uh, it's a very static dynamic, which is why you're seeing workers quit jobs in droves, not show up, and millions of jobs still open. Uh, because they have found places where they can create flexibility. So how does and should healthcare fit into all of this? So I think this is one of the systems today where, uh, especially here in our work in the U.S., just because so much of healthcare is tied to your employer, we've created this very strange system where uh, it unfortunately lives in such a binary condition of either you work and cross, uh, you know, uh, forget what the line is now, 32, 34, changes state by state, yeah. uh, on, uh, on being able to access healthcare and benefits, or you get none at all. I think there's a broader world in the future where if you're working 20 hours for a Target, 20 hours for a Walmart, maybe the cost should be split half and half or a third, a third, a third between uh, uh, the two employers and Walmart and, and the actual worker. And I think uh, 
if something along those lines in the future is a pretty powerful way uh, for us to think about like broader distribution of costs, um, the Starbucks model is also very interesting where mm -hmm. uh, net provision of healthcare actually ended up reducing their churn rates by half. Uh, and uh, if we think about how to be competitive in the broader labor economy today, maybe even if you're an employer that can't afford it uh, like Starbucks could, could there be a better load sharing one way or the other um, between platforms like ours uh, or the workers themselves? Um, yeah, no, that, that, that makes total sense. It, it seems to me that, you know, one of the many costs of the extreme polarization that we have in our politics and society today is you keep giving smart, nuanced answers that are not really that ideological or political, right? You know, it's, it's not everything you're saying is not kind of inherently Democrat or Republican, progressive or conservative. It's just Absolutely. more kind of common sense. How do you, in a world where everything is so polarized, how do you kind of get your message across? You know, for us, I think one of the biggest things has been really just a focus on worker centricity and uh, how can we come across as uh, both an organization as a platform uh, that at least like makes our value sets very clear in terms of we support the workers and uh, and backing it up with actions instead of just our words. So I'll give you an example. Uh, the, when as soon as the pandemic started, so. March 2020, we have a shutdown start, really, you know, like uh, it becomes more real, I think, for all of us. In April, um, we launch a platform called Get Shift Done. And uh, the entire notion was that uh, all these retail and hospitality workers just got fired and furloughed from all their employers. And on the other side, you had uh, um, nonprofits like food banks that suddenly have massively escalating food demand but have lost their entire volunteer and worker base. Uh, so our plan was to use both our matching infrastructure and our marketplace, as well as our operating platform, to go match these fire and, and furloughed hospitality workers into these meal-oriented nonprofits like food banks. Started off in one location, uh, and uh, uh, we provided the first quarter million uh, of funding to be able to pay worker wages ended up uh, raising $15 million and paying those out in wages, helping impact 50 million meals uh, across 100 plus nonprofits in 15 cities. And we won uh, Fast Company's Best Nonprofit in America, which, uh, which is, is exciting recognition, but hopefully a sense of, uh, especially as we you know, uh, talk more and more to policymakers and just uh, across the aisle on both sides that hey, our priorities on the work are the worker. And when the chips were down, we're in the middle of global pandemic, we helped out. And, uh, and hopefully that resonates in the long run as well as us being a relatively apolitical organization. Yeah, uh, it, it all should. Uh, unfortunately, my citizenship <laughs> experience may, may indicate otherwise. So you have a million workers on the platform. It's a pretty big sample size. Given that, What's your take on the American educational system and kind of what we get right, what we get wrong? And again, if, if I can give you a magic wand another time, if yep. the Secretary of Education said, okay, Akash, from your learnings and observations, which are not particularly partisan on either side, how would you change the way that we educate kids? What would you say? Yeah, I, I think one of the great tragedies that we're seeing is uh, uh, just an over-focus on college and uh, and just broader college education, especially as you think about like what the rising costs of higher education actually are. Yep. Uh, and I say that in the broader sense of, uh, um, you know, on two levels. One, 
um, there are a ton of opportunities and jobs that are high paying jobs that if you were to go through a clear certification, a relative apprenticeship process here in this country, you could make an incredibly good living uh, in places uh, all across the country where it's very, very difficult to find jobs. For example, uh, plumbers, HVAC technicians, all of those can easily start to make six figures uh, given the pure demand and the absolute shortage there are of those skills. But you don't see very clear certification organizations that can exist that really are technically backed in terms of being able to, one, you know, provide information that, hey, this opportunity does exist. This is also an acceptable path. Uh, and second, really find a way to streamline the process of certification. Even the certification systems that we have today uh, look and feel like, uh, you know, relative for-profit organizations that, uh, that are more focused on collecting the license fees than they are on ensuring outcomes. So I think yeah. as we think about yeah. the broader education system, it's what can we do where these certifications actually can tie to jobs, can tie to shifts, and can tie to work? In, uh, in a faster closed loop over and over again. And it's something that I think we at ShiftSmart are going to start addressing in places that we think uh, uh, we can create labor, like certified nursing assistants and others yep. as well. Yeah, absolutely. All right, the last question is actually not about ShiftSmart. It, it, it should be as easy as it gets, which is, I see in your bio that you're an emerging F1 fan. I have started <laughs> to think about, like, should I watch that show on Netflix? Would I like it? You know, I'm a huge sports fan overall, but but have never been kind of a car racing fan. Um, what, what got you into it, and, and what do you like about it? Oh my gosh, it was the Netflix show. Uh, it's it's incredible. It pairs. It, it, the nicest thing that they did is. Uh, they paired uh, individual drivers and like really focused on their stories. So you're fully captured in by the drama of like each individual driver's uh, process and like how they were handling the sport. And it's one of the unique sports in the world where there's only 20 drivers. And so you can get to know everybody and like start really rooting for the athlete one way or the other. And yeah. so we, you know, uh, my wife and I got absolutely hooked onto the Netflix show, and since then have been. Uh, uh, big Mercedes fans and Lewis Hamilton fans. So tough year this year, but uh, you know we're hoping the team can turn it around. And so you'll you'll watch these races on TV. How many of them take place now in the U.S. as opposed to Europe? So there's two in the U.S. now. So uh, the Miami race is in a couple months, uh, and then Austin has a yeah. very large racetrack as well. Yeah, yeah. I was uh, I noticed it once by accident. We were my wife's from Austin, and we were there for some holiday or something. And yeah. outside of our hotel were all these like incredible cars. And I was like, why? why? And they were like, oh, it's the F1 thing. I was like, oh, okay, I guess that kind of makes sense. But uh, all right, I will, based on your recommendation, check it out. Um, Akash, last, I guess last, last question. If yeah. people listening to this either want to get on the Shift Parts platform, learn more about it, uh, bring, you know, be a client for you guys, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, please feel free to send me directly an email as well. Uh, uh, my email is akash at shiftsmart.com, A-A-K-A-S-H. Uh, otherwise, sales or support at ShiftSmart.com, uh, very regularly managed as well. Um, we're scaling quickly. We just raised a very large capital round with uh, D1 Capital and are starting to expand both uh, our footprint across different verticals uh, within the U.S. Uh, as well as globally as well. That's awesome. Kosh, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Brad.